3CR broadcasts over the stolen land of the Woiwurrung and the Bunurung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present and emerging. And we acknowledge that a treaty was never signed and that sovereignty was never ceded. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. How's everyone today? Good. How are you? I'm well. I had another COVID test yesterday. I've had many, but um, it was negative. I'm hi- I'm so I'm here. <laughs> We're in quite a small space right now. So <laughs> <laughs> no, they, is negative. they came back very quickly that it was just, just to be sure, it was just a cold. Oh, that's, well, well I hope you feel better. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. I still haven't had one. Really? You've gone all this time and no, no test? Yeah, I, I, I want to have one before this is all over. <laughs> yeah, I ended up just having the one, but I was kind of glad to have that one laid on. I felt like I couldn't go past without having a single test yeah missing out on the experience <laughs> yeah i had one i don't want another one it's horrible i hated it <laughs> yeah it's not comfortable it's so That's uncomfortable up the schnoz yeah up the schnoz. <laughs> both, both sides <laughs> <laughs> so what's the idea behind that can covid hide in only one nostril <laughs> god knows but they have to go pretty far up yeah, to try and find places. it. <laughs> is it still is it still that same test where they stick that huge thing up your nose? Yes. All it right. goes down your throat first and then they go up to orifices. Orifices? I'm not sure if that's <laughs> <laughs> too early for my uh, grammar this morning. Orify. No, I don't <laughs> think that's the thing. <laughs> Um, and it's also Paddy's Day, St. Patrick's Day today. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. You were in green. <laughs> I'm actually in a tie-dye green top today, <laughs> but not for St. Patrick. <laughs> Sorry about that. On Monday, it was the uh, March for Justice. Yes, the yeah March for Justice, um, which was an, a great turnout, I think, for the campaign across Australia. I managed to get down. How was, the, how was the energy? <laughs> it was, yeah, it was really high energy. It was really, I, th- I think, because of what we've seen in the last week as well with the UK and the, the peaceful vigil for Sarah Avard, um, Averard and then the women being arrested there only days before this. I think it, that just those scenes that you would, you could see unfolding over social media, I think that also heightened to it. Um, It certainly did, in my case anyway, I felt like quite emotional when I was there. Um, And then, yeah, just lots of people banding together and the energy was great. The speakers were really good too. Um, Obviously, Canberra, her, Brittany Higgins, um, Judith, old Monday Breakfast pal. She was there in Canberra as well with her signs and... Yeah, I've seen um, Judith posting some good signs on Facebook. Yeah. Um, one of them said, um, you can get better cabinets at Ikea. <laughs> yeah. And did, speaking of the cabinet, did you see uh, Scott Morrison's quote? He said, uh, 
not far from here, such marches even now are being met with bullets, but not here in this country. That's something he's particularly proud of. It's yeah. a triumph, yes. he says. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say that, a very low bar to clear. And I actually, yeah, I'm really happy with that. actually happened to switch on the TV during that question time in Parliament and... Uh, yeah, there were various questions coming at him about the march, you know, why wasn't he there, so forth, but all of his answers were very swift, shutting it down or diverting the focus away from the question. Yeah, that seems to be his approach, and I don't think it's working anymore. Mm. It's making people more frustrated. Absolutely. And Tanya Plavisic yesterday, I um, heard her sort of say he just doesn't get it, and um, I think there's a lot of women around who would echo that sentiment. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. There was a good piece in the Saturday paper, if, if anyone managed to get that at the weekend, where it was, it was a look into the, the kind of elite private boys' school and the, especially kind of looking into the ones that Christian Porter and a lot of the elite kind of politicians went to. Um, and just the segregation of children from such a young age into boys and girls and whatever um this particular article was drawing that conclusion in in that they just didn't understand and they didn't even they didn't even care about women by the time they by the time they left school yeah they've kind of just been told that they were the most important people and that women kind of were serving the one purpose and apart from that they they really just didn't care i mean that's just what i got from this article yeah i think it echoes a lot of what I know about people coming from schools like that back home anyway. Yeah, definitely. I feel like it segregates people and I think it tells you a lot about their lack of empathy, um, A, for women, but for a lot of different people because you're segregated from, yeah, different classes and, um, yeah, you're just surrounded by these other um, very similar people to you, mm. so it makes sense that they're... But I also think um, when you put uh, groups of people together, uh, you can... That peer sort of influence also is heightened so in terms of boys being together if there's one that's being disrespectful it's more conducive to others joining the Mm. chorus yeah definitely and we've we've seen a i mean this whole thing is part of such a big picture of misogyny and uh, we've had both in um, new south wales and in victoria we've had several instances of boys schools who have been caught up in this boys will be boys culture mm. um we had the boys that were on the tram chanting a, a terrible song um a lot of focus on that so it's all kind of connected it hits the media because of a particular incident at a point in time but if you look back at other things that have happened it's a big trajectory and I think you're right if that's the starting point for a lot of people's education or social influences then uh, we're likely to see problems when they get older yeah that's their conditioning yep definitely and there were quite a lot of young kids at the I said when I say young kids they were in school uniform maybe kind of 13 to 16 years old maybe in groups together as well and that was that was a mixed bag so there were um there were like younger like young girls young boys um I don't know their their gender terms but yeah they were all there um which was really great to see Mm. and they were really it felt like they were really united together it was also quite nice because I was standing behind a group of them and and it really felt to me like it was their first protest or their first time they'd gone on a march um, because when they were listening to 
the speeches and something would come up and you'd sound like shame um, they were really shocked and didn't know what to do and they would be looking around like what is everyone saying like, I don't understand. But, and then they then they kind of understood towards the end and I was by myself so I think probably I was more observant anyway so I was just watching them and that was it was just really nice to see the younger like younger people come in and learning a about yeah the injustice and how to respond peacefully because it was a really great like high energy march um and i think it it really did its it made its point and all the speeches were on point and yeah and you have some um audio from the from the event yeah so we're just gonna hear some sounds um from a band that were but in the march on monday Maybe maybe we aren't. <laughs> maybe we're not going to. Um, maybe we'll come back to that later. So stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned that the whole Building show. Because <laughs> this is going to pop up somewhere. Well, while we're looking for that audio, I might just make a mention. Uh, we had a um, an exhibition uh, flyer come through from a former 3CR presenter, Claire Land, who now is at the Mundani Baluk academic unit at Victoria University and uh, she was sharing an exhibition and opening that will be happening on this uh, Saturday the 20th of March at uh, the Northern College of the Arts and Technology in Preston and it's a gathering and exhibition called A Fight for Survival, a collective story about Aboriginal identity, resilience and celebration, commemorating the grassroots fight against the decision to shut down the Northland Secondary College. It's part of the the Fuse Darabin Festival. So get along to that if you can. I imagine it will be excellent. Um, And the exhibition's open 2 till 5 on weekends and 9 till 5 weekdays. It'll be on for a week, but the opening is this Saturday at 1pm the gathering and 2pm the exhibition opening Fantastic and also uh, I should mention this that uh, uh, later this morning the Refugee Action Collective has a rally out the front of the Magistrates Court in support of Chris Breen who was uh, uh, charged with incitement for a car rally last year in April Um, so if if you are around in the city this morning get down it's going to start off at 9am and we spoke to him just after that rally I think on the Monday breakfast show last year so yeah we've been following Chris Breen's story exactly um, and we'll have David Glanz who's a spokesperson for the Refugee Action Collective to remind us of that story and um, to let us know how things are going this morning what else have we got because at the we'll start at the end shall we so at 8.15 We've got Greg Larson, who's a comedian, who's going to be on the um, yeah the Melbourne Comedy Festival this year. So that's a really exciting one because we haven't had festivals in a while. Yeah, exactly. I remember COVID hit just as the Comedy Festival uh, was about to open last year, so it was a bit bit tragic. And I've got a wonderful interview with Dr. Vivian Jarrand and Dr. Maria Palotta Kiroli who are part of a writer's group called the Ascolta Writers, and they're a creative, multi-generational group of women of Italian, Australian heritage or Italian affiliation, and they've just brought out their first book. So um, we'll be listening to what they have to say shortly. Are we going to play the audio, or is it too tricky to get that up? 
let's give it one more shot because it would be it would be nice. Let me. Uh, I'm going to press that button and see what it does. <laughs> It'll be a nice lead into the women's story. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. Give it. A, give it a shot. No, no, unfortunately. Maybe we could uh, load it into the computer and then play it afterwards, but maybe... I think we'll just hop straight into this one. Okay, so Dr Maria Palotta-Chiaroli is an academic, author and activist working on issues of gender, ethnicity, sexuality and family, and she's an honorary fellow at Deakin University. Dr Vivian Gerrand is a research fellow at Deakin University's whose studies focus on migration representations of belonging and resilience to violence. Now, these two women are part of a collective called the Ascolta Writers. And as I said, they're a multi-generational group of women of Italian, Australian heritage or Italian affiliation. The group started a year ago and has just published its first book, a collection of writing, photography and visual arts expressing the women's multiple identities and lived experiences. It's called Stories from the Inside. I spoke to Vivian and Maria last week, just after their book launch in Mildura on International Women's Day, and we had a wonderfully rich conversation. There was so much uh, that these women were able to talk about and uh, so much that we didn't get time to talk about, but uh, we're going to play as much as possible this morning, and I've divided it up into two parts with uh, some readings from the women in between, so you'll get a taste of their writing. So part one, uh, we'll hear about the women who are part of this Ascolta group and their diverse lived experiences. And then we'll hear about the way the pandemic drew them together and influenced their writing in part two. So here are Vivian Gerrand and Maria Palotta Chiroli. You'll hear both their voices throughout this interview. And the first voice you'll hear is Maria's. I asked her to explain how the group started. I think the genesis was uh, Capitola's work. She was doing her PhD and collecting stories and and writing a collective story. And through her interviews and participation, um, a whole range of women came together and we decided this is bigger than a PhD. This is about writing and um, activism and passion that we all have for a range of issues for women in the Italian culture. Interestingly, we launched this um, Ascolta group at the beginning of what was coming, which was the COVID. So we were the last event, I think, Viv. We were the last event that Coazit actually had um, before everything stopped in terms of meetings. And then we've actually launched this collection as we head a, a year later, almost to the day, um, as we head hopefully out of this pandemic. And did the Ascolta group come out of the writing that was done as an adjunct to the forum? Yes, it was right. It was the original group of participants in Teresa's work. And from there, it just kept growing from the interview participants who then introduced other women, who then introduced other women. And it uh, it just grew almost organically and it allowed for new and emerging writers and Italian activists, but also women who were pioneers like Anna Maria Deloso, who had done so much work, such as Songs of the Suitcase in the beginning. And um, all our perspectives, professional, personal activists come in. We're from a range of intersectional identities, actually. 
I think it might be helpful for listeners who don't speak Italian um, if you would mind to explain what ascolta means. Viv, up to you. You're the Italian. <laughs> ascolta means listen. Ah, so that's a big, big theme of uh, what the writing and sharing's about. Definitely. And perhaps even more pertinent during the pandemic where we all needed to listen to each other's experiences. Yes, I think so. I mean, I gravitated towards the group through that forum, but also the writing group that followed. I attended that writing group with, I think it was maybe 10 of us, with Ana Maria Delorzo and Elise Balmorvida. And that was an opportunity for us to start. We did some practice writing sessions and workshop those stories and then that um, that was what led me into the group and we decided to move online when we could no longer meet in person and I think it was probably at some point during those meetings fortnightly that we decided to do writing prompts and it was from those writing prompts that some of those stories developed so in those you know two-hour zoom sessions once a fortnight the writing prompts led to the stories that you can now enjoy reading in stories from the inside. Did you come together broadly to discuss experiences as women and women who are connected to Italy. The the work, the writing workshop I attended was for women writing their stories um, in connection to migration or not. So there were people there um, who were not necessarily um, recently migrated but had interest in the topics. And for me, as a woman and also someone that is not necessarily a migrant but who has a home and one, more than one place in the world, those are very compelling themes that I feel a strong connection to. And you're the only person who is not of Italian heritage, is that correct? That's right, yeah. <laughs> the only person who doesn't have Italian blood and um, it, it sometimes it feels a little awkward to be part of a group where I'm the only person that doesn't, but when I think about what it means to actually identify with Italy and, and you know, to speak Italian, for example, I think it's really important that we consider identity as a dynamic process and something that is in evolution throughout the life of a person. Um, I speak to my daughter in Italian, for example, and since I lived in Italy as a teenager with an Italian family, I consider it to be a second home. So I feel very honored, so privileged to have had that experience and to have that connection that endures and is a lifelong, it's a lifelong connection and passion and love. And I just wanted to pick up on what you said about um, identity being a dynamic concept, because whether we're talking about Italian people or migrants, these concepts can be essentialised so that we get quite fixed images of what a person is and what their characteristics, their behaviours, their likes, dislikes, their family history and so forth, when actually within that group you have many different identities and uh, that doesn't get necessarily get expressed when we just use that one label. Um, similarly, when we talk about a migrant, um, it might come with a package of uh, ready-made stereotypical imagery that doesn't really go anywhere to expressing the diversity of experience. Would you like to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think in, a, in a, if thinking about the Australian context, for example, we have an official policy of multiculturalism it's easy to think about diverse communities. So there's, you know, there's the Italian community or there might be the Somali community or the Chinese Australian community. And these are pretty artificial impositions because when you actually look at the makeup of the so-called communities, you see communities within communities. 
and the different ways within which, for example, different diasporas um, have lines of identification depending on where they were in the country they left. I mean, it's like if you think about these people living outside of Australia, um, it's not exactly the best example, but someone living in far north Queensland has, has not probably that much in common with someone living in inner city Melbourne. They're very, very different realities. But when you put, you know, if you put two Australians in another part of the world in Japan, then the assumption would be these people have so much in common. And yes, they have a common language and a common country, but their life experiences are going to be incredibly diverse. So even though that's a pretty obvious thing to say, it's something that tends not to be um, part of the stereotype, I think, that comes with some of these multicultural reifications of different cultural communities tends to underestimate, I think, the richness within within different cultural backgrounds that we see in Australia. And so I think one of the great things that Asphalta does is to recover that and give voice to some of those, mm. as Maria was saying earlier, intersectional differences that the group is comprised of. And it's really interesting, Claudia, because um, just going on from what Viv says, I mean, the word Italian, correct me if I'm wrong, Viv, you're the linguist here, <laughs> but, you know, most people who came to Australia from Italy would see themselves as Calabrese, um, Abruzzese, mm. from Campania, from mm. Veneto. So this imposition of this homogenizing term, Italian, mm was actually something that often happened to Italians when they stepped out of Italy. Mm. Um, and uh, and even within Italy, I mean, there are still differences occurring between, mm. say, the northern political groups, the southern groups. Um, from where I'm from and many of the members of our sculpture are actually from groups of Italians that were called the Black Italians when they were arriving in Australia in the 1920s and 1930s because we were southerners and, and close to Africa. So... Um, it, it's for us. It's been very interesting to look at that diversity within ourselves, and also I think to cover what might be the underbelly. Like there's a saying, and Viv, you probably say it better than me. Um, Italiani sono bravi genti, which means Italians are good people. And while we honour our food and our customs and our joys as Italian women, we're also very conscious of the, for example, family violence, which Maria Fantasia, one of our members, has written about. We're conscious of the misogyny. We're conscious of the homo bi transphobia. And this is something our group really also does. We celebrate, but we also critique our culture. So there's a lot more going on in the contemporary landscape than just pasta and olives. <laughs> yes, yes. The conversations we have around pasta and olives. <laughs> they're two pretty nice uh, things, but uh, there, but they, there is yeah. more. <laughs> yeah, but they offer a way in to conversations which are very deep and profound yeah. and critical, which is great. So tell me about the diversity within the group that have contributed to this wonderful book. From the point of view of age, I think the youngest member is in her late 20s and the oldest is in her mid-70s. Is that right, Maria? Yes, yes. So just from the point of view of where we are at in life, we're all at different life stages, which makes for a really rich conversations and intergenerational perspectives. We also have very different lived experiences. Some members of the group have recently arrived from Italy, have been in Australia maybe for five or ten years. Others have been... Um, who were born in Australia to Italian uh, migrants and others migrated themselves from Italy at a young age, where you might want to talk more about some of the other experiences. Yeah, some of the women are, um, have, are already writers, so they've written their narratives, their stories, they've written about their experiences. Um, some of them arrived in Australia quite young, others arrived alone, 
um, say at 17 or 18, you know, this adventure in the 1950s, you know, by yourself across the world. Um, others came to Australia with very positive, incredibly rich experiences of love and community and working outside the home, etc. Um, other members come from backgrounds where there was violence, where there was um, constraints. But one of the things we love in our groups, especially from the and, and we, we've incorporated the mothers and the grandmothers. So although we're the embodied members um, through us, there are many other stories that are being told. So, for example, we're learning more about some of the women who were in arranged marriages. We're learning about our grandmothers and our female ancestry, uh, women's ancestry around um, persistence, resilience, resistance. Um, what did we talk about, Viv, that kind of finding the strategic, finding a strategic way forward amidst incredible constraints from within Australian patriarchy, Italian patriarchy. So our conversations are um, quite, yeah, quite strong. There, there are, it's a lot of pain. It's a lot of pleasure, a lot of laughter, but a lot of loss that we discuss. That was uh, Maria Palotta Chiroli and Vivian Gerrand from Ascolta Women, a writing group exploring the experiences and identities of Italian, Australian and Italian-affiliated women. Now we're going to give listeners a taste of some of the writing from the group's book, Stories from the Inside. And then we'll return to hear more from Vivian and Maria in the second part of the interview. Here's Lucy Calapari Macuzzo reading her poem, From the Inside. From the inside, am I forgotten? I await your touch. I remember when you discovered me, with love in your eyes. My story was also yours. I am the dress that journeyed with Nonna Domenica, your mother Anna, and Uncle Bruno. In 1954, they left their precious families behind. Packed with love, in her suitcase, I remember the journey. Long and arduous, the voyage was not without its ups and downs. Tidal ebbs and flows, seasickness, excitement, nausea and anticipation of being reunited at Princess Pier with her beloved Francesco after three long years. I had been dormant, Inside, in the dark, there were flashes of light. Once treasured, I was now shelved. I too was in mourning, for she lost him, her beloved son, and I lost her, cloistered away until I was given new life. My silken thread slipped over your skin. You embodied me and I was part of you, a symbol of hope, of new life, of promise reignited. You rescued me from what seemed like a lifetime in mothballs. I was a connection to her, a thread, a filo della vita. Reactivated, you channeled her through me, a conduit of Lives past, reliving, enacting, imagined memories of her and of others in the present. 
Your intent revived my purpose, your essence so familiar. You wanted to know my story, where I came from, who made me, what was my purpose, from what was I made. La Sarta Giuseppina created me for Domenica, from red and black check, tailored to fit her like a glove. Elegantly finished with black velvet collar and cuffs and black crystal buttons. You gave me new life, new hope. Together we made new memories. We sang in unison. But it was short-lived. I had been away too long, too fragile, my threads unravelled, even after care and intervention. Warned not to be worn, reluctantly, you returned me to the darkness, to the inside, to rest. Sometimes you visit and recount my story. I miss your touch and our adventures. Maybe one day we will recreate our magic one last time. And that was Lucy Calipari Makutso from Ascolta Women reading her piece from Stories from the Inside. We're going to return now to the conversation with Vivian Gerrand and Maria Palotta Kiroli about Ascolta to hear how the group responded when the COVID crisis hit. So you came together with this enormous history, both of personal experience and uh, your individual identities, and then you talked and you wrote and then COVID hit. Did that change the way you connected with each other and the way you shared your experiences and the things you wrote about? I think it made everyone open up, the fact that we were all living in this, to use a very trite term now, unprecedented situation. Um, a situation in which, which actually made of many of us, particularly those of us in the group who haven't necessarily been in Australia so long, so recent migrants to Australia who were probably accustomed to travelling back to Italy once a year or once every couple of years, it kind of put those people in the group in touch with some of the life experiences of other members of the group who had more permanently, um, whose parents had, had more permanently settled in Australia when they were very young. So I think bringing together the different vintages of migrants is something that COVID has done because it's forced us all to stay put in one place, which was very unusual for the way we were living pre-pandemic. I mean, I'm not, as I said, I'm not, I don't have Italian blood, but I was going back to Italy at least once every two years. I, I had planned to go there twice last year for work reasons, but I'm always, I was, I was someone who was always with, an, with another trip on the horizon and always longing and thinking about when I might next go back. And, and that was then, that's gone now. And I'm in, you know, in a relatively privileged position in the sense that my family is largely in Australia. I have very close friends and a host family in Italy, but I, my biological parents are here in, in Melbourne. So I've been very fortunate, but for people that are, are more newly migrated to Australia, many have parents, grandparents, extended families who are in Italy who they can't, they can't go back and visit once a year anymore. So I think that experience has really brought all of us together um, through that, the challenge and the adversity that's created. And for many women who live alone, this was an incredible opportunity to keep having these conversations. I think also having people like Dr. Adele, Adele Murdolo, who's the director of the Centre, Multicultural Centre for Women's Health. So everyone contributed personal and political 
positions and experiences. So Adele was giving us insights into, as she's written in her, in her piece, the experiences of migrant and refugee women during COVID. Um, Maria Fantasia talked about issues around, as she was writing her book about family violence, um, you know, Sara Bavato, a lot of us were, um, for me, um, having written about my family history in tapestry, but also having written and been part of the AIDS epidemic, pandemic, this really brought up issues around hetero privilege, white privilege. Um, you know, I, I had to, I, it made me go back and reflect on who gets given government abundance and who doesn't <laughs> when these things happen. So each of us, I think, came to this group with um, personal political issues of pain and pleasure and also the way that we were what do you reckon Viv the way we were able to constantly navigate between talking about food and children and grandchildren and experiences and language and laugh and then take on these strong issues that were happening in Australia and internationally at the same time and have some fantastic debates I think one of the things that struck me reading through the book um, was, and I think it's important for listeners to um, to hear that how accessible the book is, because while these political and social issues are threaded through to different extents in the individual uh, contributions, there's very much uh, a sense of the everyday as well, and. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved, for example, in your piece, Maria, the way you took a diary approach with sketch notes and so forth. And I wrote down a few of my favourite lines because it shows how simple an act or a, a moment in time can uh, can take us straight into the warmth of someone's home or experience. One of your diary notes begins with, my days began with a piece of Toblerone from Rob. And we we immediately can feel the warmth and the love that comes from sharing chocolate, which is such a universal joy. And thank you. For me, um, that was because he'd sneaked um, a big, big bar of Toblerone into my suitcase. And so there were, you know, every day there was a little piece that I would then photograph on something in Julie's place. Um, and then in the second lockdown I did, that was taken over by memes of the cat. But <laughs> so those, I think, um, I think the everydayness is the accessibility. Claudia, you've really touched on that. I mean, I could get all academic, um, but for me, the um, it's how it was experienced every mm. day. Many of our writers grounded their work in what that year meant to them. What were the thoughts? Yeah. What were the emotions? And we have there are stories that talk about pets and and the reflections that come with time um, spent in one place. Yeah. Uh, I found um, you referred to the AIDS pandemic, and I really liked that aspect of your work as well, where you mm-hmm. talk about prior pandemics, whether it's the pandemic of discrimination that affected people with AIDS, um, yeah. the white colonial pandemic that seems too hard to find a vaccine and a cure for. Mm, yeah. Um, for me, as I said, I think uh, for me it was about reflecting on white privilege, 
reflecting on straight privilege, um, reflecting on first world, first world, in inverted commas, privilege um, was very important. And I guess I had a lot of time to do that. And at the same, you know, sitting and reading and taking care of my mum. But it was also because I was working on the Australian LGBTIQ Multicultural Council report, AGMC report. So those things were head on. And it was also because my first book was Someone You Know, and it was for, it still raises money for Bobby Goldsmith Foundation, but it was my friend John who set me on this course of writing. Uh, and um, I think I wanted to honour that. And this pandemic has really thrown up those horrible discrepancies and um, inequities within who gets, you know, and I think Adele's piece, Monica's piece, everyone, there were some pieces in there that really, I mean, Adele asked that question straight out in her piece, hey, Viv, you know, if this had happened in the late 50s, if this had happened in the 1970s, it would have been our Italian migrants doing shift work, running from job to job, going to work with a cough because they needed to put food on the table. Because the other thing we were challenging in this is um, the racism within the Italian community against other emerging migrants. So thanks for pointing that out, Claudia. It was very important for me to take that broader view. There's a wonderful image in the book, um, along with the writing. There are many photographs and uh, pieces of artwork uh, representing different experiences and expressions of experiences. But there's one of a a piece of uh, brickwork in a a Box Hill home. There's a line there about cracks and the pandemic was all about exposing cracks. And I think, Vivian, you pick up on that in your piece called Pandemic Hands. Mm. You talk about the cracks and I love the way you used the, the metaphor of hands to talk not only about the way we wash our hands and how our hands can age with washing, and the need to nurture our hands as a result of that, but as a metaphor for the hardship that people experience during these difficult times uh, and the way we need to nurture ourselves and look after ourselves. I would say also care in terms of societal care, not just individual care. I think often we think of self-care as being all about, you know, putting moisturiser on our hands, as I describe in my story, but Actually, it's about how do we live together well and how do we care for one another on a daily basis? So as a parent or, you know, as a member of a community, really, um, how do we care for each other and what place do we do we give care in our day to day lives? And I feel that the pandemic in some ways has drawn attention, as I say, in that in that story to the lack of care that that's sort of blown up in all of our faces in the pandemic. Like Wherever there is not care, that's where the virus has often hit hardest and yeah we've seen the tragedy and the way that's played out in care homes in Australia for example. The other aspect of care that you um, highlight in your piece is the gendered side of caring and that the pandemic also exposed the 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 role that women as as carers take in society. Would you like to talk about that as well? Thank you for the question regarding the gender nature of care. I think we can see in Australia, how that plays out in public life, in private life, the ways in which care tends to be diminished, uh, caregiving work is paid very poorly or not at all, and within 
power structures that we can see, particularly thinking about parliament and the kind of culture that exists there, people in positions, so the most powerful positions in the country, uh, have displayed a real lack of care in their responses recently to so many issues, but particularly questions regarding sexual assault and people having the courage to come forward and then not really being um, treated with care or responded to adequately. So I think it's a really pressing issue, particularly in Australia. We like to think perhaps that we're a forward-looking country, but I think we have a lot of, of looking at ourselves to do as a society and to think about the structures of power and the way they operate and the way they tend to um, oppress women in Australia. And the only other comment I would make is, I guess, for some of us, um, some women in leadership in a neoliberal corporate setting and within a patriarchal setting often do damage to other women. And we wanted to model how women as leaders in their own lives and as leaders with each other, we can support and nourish each other and rather than buy into some neoliberal hierarchy ladder we have to climb. Absolutely. That was Maria Palotta Chiroli and Vivian Gerrand talking about a sculptor women and the writing and ideas that led to publication of Stories from the Inside. If you're interested in purchasing this book, please grab a pen and take down the email address to contact the organiser. The email address is asculptorwomen at gmail.com and I'll spell that out, A-S-C-O-L-T-A, women at gmail.com. It's a beautiful book printed in colour and the cost is $20. Now we're going to hear an extract from Maria's piece called COVID Triptych. We pick up the story as Maria arrives in Adelaide. Julie, a close family member, generously offers Maria a place in her home where she quarantines for 14 days. Julie moves into the shed, like it's a wog shed, with kitchen, coffee machine, fold-out bed, toilet and shower. I go over the COVID-19 info. Why is she so worried? She works in a hospital. Maybe she's protecting me. But she won't hear of me moving out. A day in COVID-19 love. My days begin with a piece of Toblerone from Rob. Julie and I sit in her lush backyard in PJs with coffee cups and blankets, flowers and fruit trees, eucalypts and wattle filled with parrots, rosellas and shrikes. Steph delivers food to her mums. Her cooking is delizioso. Definitely not my DNA. Julie puts up with my noisy phone rants and Zooms, my reading and writing trances. She waves hello to my colleagues on the screen. We are in one place, but our minds are swirling in global love and connection. WhatsApps and memes from Italy. The first world toilet paper panic. White fragility and privilege. And where was all this care, campaigning and government abundance when HIV descended? I suddenly rediscover I can jog. I calculate my 100 metre track from backyard to front carport and run it 100 times. Next door lives a well-known detective. I've seen him on TV reporting some of the most terrific murders in South Australia. But I've also seen him at Judy's parties at Joe's funeral. Now I hear him 
leave and arrive, security cameras I can just make out over the fence, his baby talked to his dog, his colourful hippie wife, the perfect counterpoint to the death and despair he deals with out there. Sketch notes. 14 days is up and no police visit. Leaving feels strange. It's only been two weeks. What does a two-month, two-year, 20-year prison feel like? Or an unknown time and an unknown future as a refugee in a detention centre? Just before I leave, I asked Julie again about the shed and why she moved in there. She explains that her other daughter-in-law is pregnant. Despite the uncertainty of COVID-19, Julie took me in, moved herself out, and did not say a word about her future grandchild. And that was a beautiful piece, an extract from Maria Palotta Kiroli's COVID Triptych. It's just one of the rich collection of writings appearing in Stories from the Inside by the Ascolta Women. And if you're interested in purchasing the book, I'll give you the email address again, ascoltawomen at gmail.com, A-S-C-O-L-T-A, women at gmail.com. And now let's go to a Joni Mitchell track. This is Big Yellow Taxi. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. With a pink hotel, a boutique and a swinging hot spot. Seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. It paid paradise, put up a parking lot. They took all the trees, put them in a tree museum, and they charged the people a dollar and a half just to see them. Seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. Hey, farmer, farmer, put away the DDT now. Give me spots on my apples, or leave me the birds and the bees. Please don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. The cave paradise put up a parking lot. Late last night, I heard the screen door slam. And a big yellow taxi took away my old man. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? The cave paradise put up a parking lot. That you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. They paid paradise, put up a parking lot. (laughs) That was Big Yellow Taxi by Joni Mitchell. And now we're going to hear some audio from Monday's Women's March for Justice. Um, so first up, we're going to hear a phone conversation with Judith Peppard, who was live at the scene in Canberra. 
Um, and then we'll get to that much-awaited audio from Alice. And we've got someone else who's calling in from Canberra, I believe. It's Judith Peppard, a 3CR Current Affairs broadcaster. Judith, can you hear us? Yes, I can. It's amazing here. <laughs> I think there's, the, the police are estimating 4,000 people. But if that's the police estimate, I think there's a lot more. You can't see the end. And I've been going around just talking to people, asking why they're here. I'm sorry, I'm moving away. I don't want, we've just had a quiet moment. Oh, we've had the, the, the welcome to country. We've had some poetry and we've had something on quiet listening. So we're just kind of moving out of that. So, but, so uh, Ju- Judith, tell us, a, tell us a little bit about why people have come. I'm very interested to hear people's impressions oh. of why they're there and so forth. Well, I mean, it, it, people are really passionate. Like some people have never been to a rally before, you know, That's and amazing. this is the first time that I know. But they're just so concerned, particularly the women and men. I've spoken to a few men as well. They're concerned for their daughters, they're concerned for their granddaughters, and they're concerned for their sons that they don't grow up in this way. So that's the kind of thing they've been saying. There's, a, there's two women who have come up from Sydney and they're wearing handmade tail outfits. <laughs> so they got the bonnet and the roast on, and they're just feeling like this. And actually, some music starting now with chant. I don't know if you can hear it in the distance, maybe not. But uh, yes, anything else you were wondering? Yes, or, uh, so I'm really curious about just the atmosphere there too. It sounds quite beautiful. You've had poetry and welcome to country. So what are your feelings is. and impressions? How are you feeling about being there? I feel it's amazing, and I feel it from you know all the people here, the women, like they, you know, walking up. We pass like people have come from Brisbane, um, a couple spoken, a couple from Coffs Harbour, from Melbourne, and also from Sydney, and uh, and it's all like a real. There's a real sense of sisterhood. Like people know why they're here, and they really value that we're here together, and it's. Yeah, it's very powerful, I must say. And this one woman said, I know I'm going to cry sometime today. Yes. <laughs> Judith, it looks like you've got a beautiful blue sky up there at the moment. I'm just having a look at Twitter and some of the signage. Oh, the signage is fantastic. And again, so creative. You know, and some of them are going on, um, you know, Julia Gillard's uh, talk on misogyny, and they've quoted from that. They put photos of. Uh, uh, Scott Morrison there. Um, there's, um, yeah, I mean, and lots of enough is enough. And so many older women I spoke to said, we thought we'd done this. Yes. You know, we thought we'd finished this work, and we can't believe that we're still doing it. And lots of people said things have not improved since, you know, 20, 30 years ago when I marched. Yeah, people that's, really that's, feel that quite strongly. That, that's a yeah. big thing, isn't it? I'm still marching for what's, you know, going on. How long is this going to take? But we've just received a powerful picture from up there with um, pictures of Parliament saying rape place, which is very powerful. Oh, so wow. That's from yeah, Canberra, so it shows the Canberra building. But, yeah, yeah. what's happening there? What's yeah, happening yeah. in that building? Not, not a very safe yeah. place, eh? No, not a safe workplace at all, for sure. And I don't know if you saw, I think when Sally McManus arrived in Canberra, there was a, someone at the airport with a sign, Beware the Ides of March, Scott Morrison. Mm. And if you know the Ides of March, of course, is when Julius Caesar was murdered. And I just thought it was just a wonderful poster, but I don't see it here today. But it could be, because there's just so many. Yeah, and the day, it's beautiful. I mean, and you know what? It's going to rain all the rest of the week. 
<laughs> well, some the, the, goddess, the goddess is up there looking after us, I think. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Now, we've received various pictures from the placards up there. They look really imaginative, and it seems like there's a real atmosphere. Lots of different women, eh? Young women, old women, you know, different nationalities. So, yeah. Good stuff. Yes, I spoke to some women from the ANU and men, Student Association. And, you know, and people are, you know, there are people here, like one of those women said, I've had this happen to me. I don't want it to happen to anyone else. And that's why I'm out. And, you know, different cultures, backgrounds, it is amazing. Young, all ages. <laughs> well, thanks so much, um, Judith, for that call. That was great to hear what's happening up in Canberra. Have a good rest yes, of the day. Tell us, yeah. Oh, I good know. One. Thank it's you. going to be amazing. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Judith. And that was some of the audio from the march in Melbourne. So there was a big kind of brass band um, and they were handing out lyrics and people were singing along. It got a bit livelier um, after a couple of songs, but that was the first one that they kicked off with and it really grabbed everyone's attention. And yeah, it was great to sing behind the masks because we obviously were all wearing our masks. But um, yeah, it was great. And this is September Song from Leah Flanagan. The setting sun sinks later in September And in my home every day is overseas A palette of colours they wash Never the same, but always as beautiful as the lies.
wash the skyline in my home every night at Mendel Beach. Oh, 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 and I think how happy we must be. We're in a tiny boat waiting on a settled sea. Our laughter chimes to all the people on the beach. They're softened silhouettes, so close to us, but out of reach. La 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 la. That was September song from Leah Flanagan. You're listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR. I'm Paddy, and now we're going to speak live with David Glanz from the Refugee Action Collective. Today from 9am there is a rally at 233 William Street in the CBD uh, in support of Chris Breen. Thanks for joining us on the show this morning, David. It's a pleasure. How are you? Very good. Uh, Many of our listeners will be aware, but could you tell us why Chris Breen is in front of the Magistrates Court today? has been charged with incitement, which means he was, uh, the police say that he was incited with safe car convoy organised by the Refugee Action Collective for the Mantra Hotel in Preston um, on uh, Good Friday last year. And I'm sure listeners know that until just before Christmas, there were more than 60 refugees being held in the Mantra, effectively in, uh, in, in prison, in detention. And the Refugee Action Collective wanted to organise a convoy to raise their spirit, to tell them they weren't on their own, and to uh, to raise the importance of them being freed into the community. And David, in the last couple of months, we've seen uh, a lot of those refugees who were in hotel detention finally freed. How does that feel? It's absolutely tremendous. The smiles on their faces are a delight to behold. Um, but we need to be aware that there are still people locked up for no apparent reason. The federal government is completely arbitrary and cruel in the way that it's treating these men, men and women. Uh, some have been released, some haven't been released, and we are continuing the fight. Uh, I would urge everybody here not just to support our rally this morning, but to come to the Palm Sunday rally on March the 28th at the State Library at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. That's going to be an, a very important uh, opportunity to show refugees that we're with them we're calling for freedom but we're also calling for permanent rights for all refugees have been freed because the ones who have been freed they're on six month visas and they can't study and they can't access job seeker and it would be great to see a crowd uh today at uh william street to show to show our support uh what have you got planned for t- today's rally we'll be speaking out in solidarity with chris we'll have banners there I know from the Refugee Action Collective, from unions, uh, including Chris's own sub-branch of the Australian Education Union. The, camp, the defence campaign has had tremendous support from unions, uh, from MPs. The entire um, Victorian Greens party room has signed up for the defence campaign and hundreds and hundreds of other people. So uh, if Chris is found guilty today, and that's always a possibility, we will be stepping up the defence campaign he will be appealing because if he is guilty of a criminal charge, 
of putting up a Facebook event for a COVID-safe event, then all of us uh, as activists in unions, in uh, community groups, uh, environmental groups, women's groups, all of us are at risk of being uh, uh, attacked by the police with the charge of incitement. That's a very good point. And for people who can't attend today's rally, how else can they show support for refugees and for the Refugee Action Collective? Well, um, you can actually follow uh, today's court event. If you go onto Facebook and look for uh, the, the event, search for Refugee Action Collective, we have a, a Facebook event. There's a link to the online site, so you can actually follow the, the case uh, live when it, when it begins at 10 o'clock. Uh, and as I say, we meet every Monday. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. We'd love to see new faces in the campaign. And then come along on March the 28th, which is, what, less than two weeks away now, uh, for the Palm Sunday rally. We want thousands out on the streets, two o'clock at the State Library. Fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show this morning, David. Okay, pleasure. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. That these can never take from Ow. Mother's womb prison Always beyond apocalypse is wrong So don't extinction Roman restriction Trapped in missions The colonial system Assimilation prescription Spirit never trap We oversee a glisten Ancestors wisdom Forevermore given yo Yes we will always survive Tried to bring on genocidal collapse, but now 200 plus seconds have elapsed. Conquest didn't work, caught up in a new tracks. Packed for the pain of generations' impact. Put it back to this constant hideous attack. But yet we stand strong, spot of all of that. Quicksand snakes and spotters, yes, there's a barber. With a pile of time strong, masters colliding. The richer we got up to the sand of that silence. The lump shots and sovereign creators perspiring. Flood that the color through the policy of violence. We family and you was a black hole rising. It's a black hole rising. Yeah, we always surviving. Yes, we will always survive. No matter what they do, don't we never gon' die? 
survive. Yes, we will always survive. Yes, we will always survive. Yes, we will always survive. No matter what they do, we will never go down. Yes, we will always survive. Yes, we will always survive. Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter.
that was Nia Songbird with All Sisters Unite. And just before that, we heard Dreaming Now. And now we've got Greg on the line. So Greg Larson is at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival this year with his one-man play about life on the dole, and it's called This Might Not Be Hell. Greg, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Yeah, no worries. Can you tell us a little bit about your show this year at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival? Um, yeah, so, um, well, as you say, it's a one-man play. It's uh, it's an hour-long play about being on the dole. It's um, I, I play a character who's sort of... Not, it, I, I don't play myself. It's not, a, um, it's not necessarily autobiographical, but it's a character based on my experiences and people that I've known and and um you know things that happen when you're on the dole um and it's set in the past it's set in 2004 um which is the time that I did work for the dole so I wanted to sort of make it accurate um to the time period as well so it uses a lot of music and stuff like that from 2004 cool um, and oh sorry go on yeah. no no I mean I, I was just I was just saying that it's um it was something I, I, I made for last year's comedy festival, and now it was, um, you know, obviously it was cancelled um, mm. because of the pandemic and everything. So now I feel like, in a way, it's even more topical than ever because we've just had a year where half the country's been on the dole, or you know, job seeker or job keeper or whatever. Um, so a lot, a lot of people have an experience with Centrelink now. So I feel like it's more topical than it than it was back when I wrote it. Absolutely. I think it will resonate with a lot of people in the audience. Mm. And um, and where where is this might not be hell set? Where what kind of town are you in? Yeah, I'm in um, I'm in Goodna in Ipswich. Um, it's a suburb of Ipswich in Queensland. So I'm from Queensland, and um, mm. Goodna is around where I grew up. I grew up in that area that I grew up in the suburb next to it called Redbank. Um, which, you know, from people from Melbourne, they probably have no frame of reference. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's basically, you know, it's like a, it's a pretty suburban, pretty typical working class slash welfare class suburban area. Um, you know, it's, it's the kind of place that's a, it's a bit rough. It's a bit, um, you know, there's a Centrelink and a cash converters right next to it kind of thing. You know, it's, it's that kind of neighborhood. Um, and yeah, so I've set it up there, um, and in, I performed it once up in Queensland, and, um, and people seem to respond well to it. So, oh, well, that's good sir. That must have been quite a relief. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, people seem to get some of the local references and all that kind of stuff, which down here might not, you know, make it make as much sense. But that being said, it's not really. Mm. You know, it could be anywhere. It could be set anywhere in Australia. That's the sort of mm-hmm. the point of it. And it's set in um, 2004, and like you said, it's based on some mm. of your own experiences. And mm. so with, with your own experience with the welfare system in Australia, did you find mm. much of it funny at the time, or is it something that upon reflection um, you, can, you can kind of either laugh at your own experience or just those moments that happened while you were on the welfare system? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's never funny at the time. No. Um, <laughs> it's not funny when you're... It's it's not funny when you're constantly stressed out and trying to, you know, survive when there's just constant problems of, you know, the, your, your payment's been cancelled because they've lost a form or something like that, you know. But at the same time, 
you can acknowledge at the time how absurd it is. The, the amount of times that I was dealing with Centrelink just going, I can't, I actually can't believe this has happened. You know, and, mm-hmm. and you, you can at least acknowledge, I'll probably laugh about this one day. Um, but at the time, no, it's not funny at all. Um, but the, the, the system is so absurd and so ridiculous that it's hard not to find it funny in retrospect. Yeah, absolutely. And were you in comedy in 2004? No, not at all. I was, um, back then I was in a couple of punk bands and stuff. I was, I was heavily into music and I, you know, music was what I, what I was pursuing. I hadn't even thought that I was going to be a comedian at that time in my life. And, um, so yeah, it was, a sort of, and that's the other thing too. I I wanted to write a, a show. I didn't want this to be a show about a struggling artist or anything like that. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the main character, James, um, he's not someone who's in the arts or anything like that. I, it's not a story about the arts. I've, we've seen a lot of stories in the last year or, or, or a couple of years of people in the arts and in the arts world and in the media world, and I wanted to get away from that. Um, so this character is kind of like... It's based on me, but someone who doesn't have my same background and upbringing I guess and and who isn't in the media or isn't in the arts yeah and so how did you get into comedy I feel like it was something I always sort of wanted to do but never thought I would actually do it I mean like it it always I always felt like oh yeah doing stand-up would be cool and I always thought about making sketches and stuff and when YouTube got really big I thought you know, like for fun, I could make sketches and things. Um, and it was around 2008, 2009 that I started dabbling in comedy, and it wasn't around until around 2010 that I really started to do it properly. Um, but yeah, it was around then, and it was it was just because it was literally because I worked with a guy at this um, just while I was at uni. I had this um, sort of uh, casual job, and one of the guys I worked with kept talking about how he wanted to try stand-up and him and I talked about it a bit and then we both decided to do stand-up comedy as a bit of fun one night and yeah and then we both just kept doing it and he's now continues to be a good friend he works in the works in tv he's a mate of mine in Sydney and um, Mm. yeah that's sort of how it all happened oh cool and um like you said I mean you had written this to to be on last year's event um, but what is what has the last year been like for a stand-up comic? Well, you know, in, in in some ways not that bad, in other ways bad. It, Did it provide a lot of material? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like there was a lot of material, a lot of, lot of a lot of time to write stuff, a lot of time to to sort of do things, and and in in some ways. There's been some pretty good opportunities in the last year because there's been all kinds of, you know, gigs over Zoom or over the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and for myself, I already had a podcast with um, uh, Anne Edmonds and Ben Russell, who are two other comics um, that people might know. But um, we already had a podcast going, right? So we we told people, you know, if you want to get onto our Patreon and, and give us money directly. Mm you know, that helps us out, and if you like it, then, you know, that you're paying for something you like. And and so a lot of comedians have found themselves trying to be a lot more self-sufficient and trying to find ways that they can make money without having to rely on 
gigs, so, you know, podcasts, online stuff. And and in the end, we've come out of it, I think, in a, in a better place, especially in Melbourne, because, you know, so many gigs now, because of COVID restrictions, have to charge, you know, money for, for people to come in. Mm. And, and now the gigs are paying more than they used to. And so I think overall, this has really shown, like, the people of Australia that people in the arts matter and they've shown themselves to be more willing to pay for the arts that they like. Um, so it's, it's overall, there's, there's been positives and negatives. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's not just a black and white thing. So it's hard to, it's hard to sort of define it in, in one sentence, but mm. it's been a crazy year. Yeah, and I think 2020 changed the way that lots of people like went went and like found comedy as well. Like TikTok mm. was such a huge platform mm. for for that. Did you ever get behind TikTok or get get in anything like that? No, I'm too I'm definitely too lame to be on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'm I'm I feel like if I go on TikTok, I'm like I'm 37 now and it, it that, I, there's your niche. There's your TikTok niche. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah. You found it. All the, yeah, all the TikTok. <laughs> but no, I feel like it, it's too it's too niche. I've got too many. That would be another thing. I, I always put in too much stuff on my plate. I've, you know, I got a podcast. I'm, I try to make YouTube sketches and stuff, and try and get the gigs. So you, TikTok's TikTok's no not for me, but cool for anyone who who yeah. wants to do it. You know, it's it's sick. Um. Yeah, I'm mostly just on. If it's if it's through social media, I'm on Twitter being really angry. That's what I do. <laughs> um, and and are you absolutely buzzing to get on stage again with the, with your play? Uh, this might not be hell. I don't know. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> I I mean I'm not. I'm a pessimist, and I I mean right before the comedy festival, I'm pretty much lying awake at night, going, "This is the worst thing anyone's ever made." They're going to run me out of town. Um, so that's pretty much where my headspace is at right now. But that's just because I'm paranoid. If you're listening to this, please come. It's fine. <laughs> and it's not the worst thing that's ever been made. Um, once I'm on the stage, I'll be fine. But um, there's definitely a sort of a dread right before the festival starts. Yeah. Um, that well, sort of anxiety. And I use that to fuel. The panic fuels my last-minute writing and changes. And, mm-hmm. and um, yeah. Well, it's at the Melbourne Town Hall. Am I right in saying mm. that? And um, and various different dates. I, I just urge listeners mm. to go onto the Comedy Festival um, website yeah. to yeah. to book their tickets. Um, Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. And I'll be in the audience. That's for sure. I really can't wait to see it. So uh, cool. yeah, see you there. Yeah. Well, cool. See you there. See, see you. ya. Bye, Greg. Bye. And that was Greg Larson, um, who has a show called This Might Not Be Hell, and it's all about life on the dole. And one of the lines that really got me um, was that the story covers the boredom, depression, financial struggles, and the near constant diarrhea of living day to day as an unemployed person during the Howard years. So anyone who wants a laugh um, and can potentially relate to that, yeah, head on over to the Comedy Festival website and see if you can book a ticket. Thanks, Greg. Excellent.
And yeah, I think that's our show for today. A big thank you to all our guests. It's been good to be on Wednesday breakfast this morning. Yeah, thank you to all of our guests today. And just a quick reminder about that uh, rally that's uh, going on in front of the Magistrates Court to support Chris Breen, who's been charged with incitement for that uh, car rally that was organised to support the refugees at the Mantra Hotel last year in April. Uh, So get down there. It's starting off at 9am. Not long. All right. We'll see you next Wednesday. Um, Until then, there's Women on the Line. And we'll leave you with a song from Wendy Saddington. This is Looking Through a Window. I'm gonna